0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludi: The gospel delivery.
1: A study in leading souls from death unto life. When we are a church as we ought to be, there are certain evidences of a living church. And one of that, those evidences is it brings life. And it brings life to others. Well, What does that look like? It looks like others coming into the kingdom of heaven. People become believers. When the church of Jesus Christ is made alive, it can't help but make others alive. There's a natural reproduction process that begins to take place. And so what you'll see is the gospel delivery, and now that's somewhat of a play on words, because when I say that, you're thinking of the speaking of it, and that's what I mean. However, it also means the giving forth of life. Paul calls it travail. In prayer, he travailed to see the birth or the beginnings of life in others. And so in this process, we see this new birth idea coming forth. And the idea is this study in leading souls through that delivery process through that travail unto newness of life. They're dead, and now they're alive. And what's strange is every single one of us in here knows we can't bring someone to life, and yet we're supposed to be a part of that process. So what is our role? So this is dedicated to Abby, my little six-year-old, who is six years old today. And uh, six years ago, on Father's Day, she was born. And so she was delivered. See, isn't this profound? Isn't this an amazing statement of how many little ones are being born and how, how significant this is? But she was my precious Father's Day gift. This is, Abby went out with Mama uh, this, this weekend, and she was dressed up like a princess. And so she was, you've never seen Abby so excited as to spend a night at a hotel with Mama. She got to swim in the pool, just have Mama time. When you have six kids, that Mama time is very, very precious. And so this is Abby's quote. There is nothing better than being dressed up like a princess and spending the night in a hotel with mama. But did you know what is even better than that? Being able to share about Jesus with someone. Now, a lot of this theme that we've been cultivating has a lot to do with my little daughter, uh, Abby. She's the one that's always telling me, if they're dying and going to hell, Daddy, why aren't you talking to them about Jesus? like, well, you know, there's an appropriate time to do things, Abby. So does everyone in our neighborhood know about Jesus? Because if they don't, Daddy, that means they would go to hell. Yes, that's a good point, Abby. Well, then why don't we go out and tell them? (laughs) Well, you know, it's complicated. (laughs) To Abby, it's not complicated. She was crying in the kitchen the other day over the fact that she hadn't yet talked to someone about Jesus. She'd communicated, like writing it down, But she'd never talked to someone about Jesus. She was crying over that fact. And, you know, what do you do with that? As a father, that's a good agony. It's the right sort of agony for someone to have. So I don't want to stop and say, hey, hey, stop fussing. It's like, actually, keep fussing. I want you to have an agony. I want you to desire to give Jesus. Why aren't I speaking to people? Have you ever had that feeling? You go out with the intention to share Jesus, and then at the end of the day, you realize you kept your mouth shut the entire time. And it becomes a turmoil in your soul. Well, that's little Abby. And this is her sixth birthday. So I'm going to dedicate this message to her. I am witnessing daily the conversion of sinners. I seldom go out, but, give, but God gives me some fruit. Is that a quote coming from us, or just from Praying Johnny? You see, Johnny prayed, what was he praying for? Souls. And when he went out, he expected to find them. And in every movement throughout his day, he was expecting to see fruit. And he saw it, and he found it. Is this us? And so one of the challenges to us as a church has been to say, I want this to be our quote. I don't want it to just be some mysterious quote from way back when that we nod along, oh, that's neat. What's the good of that quote if it doesn't move us? If it doesn't stir within us a longing for the same, is that right? Is this good? Or is this extreme Christianity? Is this something that we need to put down? Well, not all of us are called to do that. Not all of us are called to bear fruit like that. Or, or is this actually what our life is supposed to look like? I think there's a resonance within us in this room to say, you know, I think I need more John Oct- Octavi in me. I think I need to be praying Eric. You stick your name in there. Is that our name? Does everyone in our life know that we are giving our life to the pursuit of God's agenda in this earth? Proverbs 11, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. So if you really are the righteous, and how do you become righteous? Well, according to the New Testament in Christ's blood, when anyone repents And believes they are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so like a robe he knits it together on the cross and when we come unto him he actually clothes us with his life with his sinless perfection and we then become righteous in the eyes of God and so as a result those that believe on Jesus are considered and accounted as the righteous so what does it say in Proverbs It says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Well, that's sort of a strange statement. I mean, we as humans don't give birth to trees. And so it's interesting how this mixed metaphor sort of comes in, because the righteous are us, and yet the fruit of our life is a tree? Yeah. So let's talk about that real quick. For I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does Paul say? For I determine not to know anything among you except the tree of life. In other words, what comes out of us? What is the fruit of us? It's the work of Jesus. It's the evidence of what he's accomplished, the power of the gospel. What comes out of us is that life. You see, when we think about the cross, some of us don't think about a tree. We don't call it the tree of life, and yet there's always two trees. There was two trees in the Garden of Eden. Did you guys know that? Two trees. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one we're very uh, well informed about, but there was another tree. It's called the tree of life. And for whatever reason, Adam and Eve didn't eat from that tree. They ate from the wrong one, the one that God said, the day in which you eat of this tree, you will die. So there's a tree that if you eat of it, the day in which you eat of it, you will die. But there's also a tree that the day in which you eat of it, you will surely live. And it's called the tree of life. And we look at that as Christians on this side of the the Jordan River, if you will, the parting See where Joshua has brought us into the land of Canaan. We have the new covenant in his blood. That tree is the cross. It's the shed blood of Jesus. It's that river that flows out of his side. And in the midst of that river grows a tree. It's called the tree of life. That is what is supposed to come out of our life. It's the message of Jesus and him crucified. And it's the evidence of life springing up in those around us. See, that tree of life brings life. It brought it to us. And when we give it, it brings it to others. So what comes out of us is what is known as the gospel. He that wins souls is wise. This is the second half of that proverb. So the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. But then the second half is, he that wins souls is wise. Now, we could just pause right there and say, do we have wise men and women in this room? You see, it's a little awkward, because if we're talking about the fruit of the life of the Spirit of God inside of us, I have a hunch that there's quite a few of us in here that could give testimony to the fact that, yes, God has changed my life, and my life is literally showing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control isn't that exciting and it's real however he that wins souls is wise there is a greater fruit you see love is a fruit that is a chief attribute to show the disciples of christ love for one another however if you truly love then it shows with a tree of life it shows with life being born in those that you're encountering it reproduces A couple falls in love. They get married. They say, I do. They run off into the sunset. And what happens? Life. Little children start running around. When a Christian marries Christ, they ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after in that eternal realm. And guess what? Life. Little children start running around. You see, this life within us, this tree of life that we've been grafted into, When we begin to bear fruit, it's going to bear like fruit in others, which is a changed existence, a soul, a heart, a mind, an existence transformed and regenerated by the living God. He that wins souls is wise. Isaac Watts, go into the public assembly with a design to strike and persuade some souls there into repentance and salvation. Go to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to make the lame walk, to make the foolish wise, to raise those that are dead in trespasses and sins to a heavenly and divine life, and to bring guilty rebels to return to the love and obedience of their maker by Christ Jesus, the great reconciler, that they may be pardoned and saved. Go to diffuse the savor of the name of Christ in his gospel through a whole assembly and to allure souls to partake of his grace and glory. One of the things you're gonna notice in going back to those that we would call of the fellowship of the burning heart. Those that lived with such passion for Jesus Christ lived with a passion for souls. I and mean, when, you, when you read C.T. Stud, you're just so deeply convicted. And you either say, oh, that's just C.T. Studd. That's just the way he lived. The guy, every moment, he, well, every moment of his day, he was looking for a soul to win. But this is not just C.T. Studd. This is every great Christian man or woman that we would all esteem. In American Christianity, though, we have a damper pedal on our evangelistic fervor to the point where it's actually unusual if you see someone going after souls. In fact, it's very uncomfortable for us. It's like, excuse me, could you dial it down a few notches? Okay, you're making the rest of us look bad. And I, I've said over the past few weeks quite a few times, I mentioned my afternoon with Ray Comfort. You know, I was visiting him in Southern California. Just went out to lunch. I mean, how harmless is that going to be, to go out to lunch with Ray Comfort? The guy, I don't know how many people he talked with in that two-hour stretch of time about the gospel. It's like, hey, I came all the way to visit you. you think you'd think he would be talking to me. Instead, he's sharing the gospel with everyone we run in contact with. And it's like, this is uncomfortable, Ray in the midst of a, it was a rather nice restaurant, right? And there was all these military personnel sitting around a nice, a big table and having it like a conference. He butts his head into their conversations, excuse me, (laughs) and just starts asking them questions about their soul. You don't do that in a restaurant. I mean, these people could be armed. We don't do that sort of thing. And so I found myself Sort of saying, yeah, I have to, you know, I, we were headed this way, right? I, I, I mean, do I, am I willing to walk up to the table with him and go, yeah, I'm with him. <laughs> Everyone in that restaurant looks and like, yeah, I, I'm with this guy, the wacko. <laughs> Not only should we be willing to be with the wacko, but to become the wacko. What is the fruit of our lives? Are we really proving the wise? Are we winning souls? So this is what has been going on in our church for quite a few weeks now. Is there's a difference and there's a discrepancy between you nodding along and esteeming some of the things I'm saying, and saying, "Oh, that's good. That's good. It's convicting, Eric. Yeah, convicting." But does it move you? Are you actually calling on God to change whatever that impediment is that is hindering you from doing this work? And so I, have, I keep pressing on that, just sort of like an open sore in our church. It's like I just keep poking at it saying what's this are we doing it?" i'm not saying do we agree with it we're the type of church that will agree with the hearty truths of scripture not along and say amen to it but are we willing to live those hearty truths that's what matters you have nothing to do but save souls therefore spend to be spent in this work thank you mr wesley Aren't there other things we need to do? That is a little extreme. Now, he is talking to pastors. But do you know if you're talking to pastors, what the pastor would think too? Uh, Mr. Wesley, there's a lot of other things to do in running a church than just saving souls. And what Mr. Wesley would say back is, hey, buddy, if you're doing anything that is hindering you from the chief occupation of why you're here on earth, you need to question that activity. Most of us have so many excuses why we can't get to this. Why we can't actually labor to see others come into the kingdom of heaven. And so that's where I want that little pinch in our soul, that conviction to come. Get rid of the justifications. Let's start being Christians. The agony of barrenness, which we could call the beginnings of persistent prayer. So one of the things that you'll see is a theme in scripture. Most of us don't actually notice it, but it's there. It's called barrenness. Barrenness is the desire to have children, but the inability to do so. And so it's being married, but being unable to conceive, to be able to give rise to a child. And I would say that this might be a pretty good word to describe American Christianity. I'm not saying we're not married to Christ, and I'm not saying it's not a genuine love story that we have with him, and we haven't entered into covenant with the king of all kings but are we producing fruit? And that's a question for each of us as individuals because there are some in here that are. And there's others that have heard this for the past seven, eight weeks and aren't. And so the key question isn't some guilt complex, you know, where you need to be going, oh yeah, he just keeps throwing it on. Here's what I'm looking for. I want you to acknowledge where you're at. I don't care if it sounds impressive when it comes out. But I want you to, be, to to acknowledge, if you really are barren, that you acknowledge that you're barren. Because that is what we could call the beginnings of persistent prayer. You see, when you realize that you are barren and you're not producing fruit, it should touch you with an ache and an agony. It's like, this isn't right. It isn't right. That's good. And so allow that conviction to come in. It's a gentle tug of the Spirit of God upon your soul. This isn't right. And what should it lead to? A crying out unto God. You know, this is the pattern throughout Scripture. A woman, of, a woman in, in the Bible is barren. I'm going to show you a whole history of this. They're barren, and what do they do? They realize they're barrenness, They cry out to God. They begin to pray. And what does God do? He gives them children, supernatural children. The barren woman is shamed by her fruitlessness and cries out in anguish of soul. Is that us? The barren woman is moved to prayer to cover her shame of fruitlessness, begging God night and day for life to form within her. The barren woman is supernaturally aided through prayer to bear not a mere human, but a mighty man, a prevailing hero of Israel. It's amazing, and it's quite uncanny, because the whole history of the Bible and what you see is a genealogy. It's tracking something. It's following something from Eve all the way to Mary. What you see is you see the genealogical record of one known as Jesus Christ. I mean, why are they talking about Ruth? Ruth is in the line. Why are they talking about Rahab? Well, Rahab is in the line. You see, these are all part of the story of the Messiah. And yet, in that story, did you know that there is a whole lot of barrenness? Isn't that interesting? In the line of the Messiah, there's a whole lot of barrenness. That should encourage you. See, we're part of that line. And yes, there may be barrenness today, but that doesn't mean it's supposed to remain. It's supposed to lead you to prayer. So look at this list. Sarah, so we get this whole thing started off. Remember Sarai? She marries Abram, and yet she's barren. Out of all the things, what does God say to Abraham? Your descendants shall be as the stars in the heavens, as the sand on the seashore. You know, it's like, great, but you gave me a wife that's barren. How in the world are we supposed to pull this off? Isn't that an amazing thing that even the beginnings of the lineage of faith start with a barren woman? She's barren until 90 years of age and then begets. Isaac, no small character in history, by the way. Rebecca, who just happens to be Isaac's wife, who God picks for Isaac, by the way. If you remember the story, the love story of Isaac and Rebecca, it's really good. But who's the one selecting his wife? God. And can't you imagine Isaac going, God, you sort of missed one key thing? Uh, She's barren. I mean, how ridiculous is that? God should have, he should have a checklist. It's just like, you know, beautiful, you know, uh, virgin uh uh fruitful or fruit able (laughs) rachel who is now the wife of jacob who is also known as israel jacob's wife is barren and then begets joseph who delivered the nation of israel Manoah's wife was barren and then she begets samson another deliverer of the nation hannah was barren and then has samuel a prophet of israel ruth barren and widowed finds mercy and begets obed who begets jesse the father of David, whose, of whose line is Jesus Christ. Elizabeth, elderly and unable to bear children after the natural, begets John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there was no greater prophet born of women. The church at Ellerslie, barren until June of 2015, begets 7.16 billion. You guys need to be more expectant. That, was, that goes back to a message I gave called the Gospel Challenge when I said, if you take 200 Christians and they all pursue in prayer an active engagement with the kingdom of heaven to go after one soul each month, it's just 200 people, one soul each month, and then they disciple that soul to do the same. In seven years, you reach 7.16 billion people, which is more people than are even on earth. That's 200 people just doing the work of the kingdom of heaven. One a month. I mean, how pathetic is that? I know some of you are like, that's yeah, not pathetic at all. I mean, I'd I take one every 20 years right now. If shame of childlessness had not subdued these women, what mighty men would have been lost? Isn't that an interesting statement? There's a shame of childlessness. Allow that shame to strike your soul. It's okay, because it subdues us. It brings us into that weakened state to say, I need the mighty one of heaven to bring life in and through my life. Note, are we shamed over our childlessness? Do we weep in the anguish and shame of our ministries that conceive not the new life, the new birth, and others? Are we not grieved over our impotence, our infertility, our inability to beget children in the faith? Are we not yet fed up with our weakness to pray and see liberty won and captives set free? Are we not yet sickened that this world sees nothing marvelous or powerful in our lives to cause them to wonder what it is we possess? Are we not shamed that this world sees this not as a threat but merely as a nuisance? May we, the barren in Israel, cry out in supplication. May we echo the demand of Rachel under our bridegroom, give me children or I die. Are, are we ready for that anguish? Give us children or we die. That's the sort of anguish that we are supposed to have. The Welsh Revival, the picture of faith in the boat. In the Welsh Revival, there was a certain metaphorical picture that was given that they would repeat over and over and over again, and it had to do with the initiation of faith, the initial transaction of a soul with Jesus Christ. And so it describes, uh, you know, imagine that we are in a vast ocean, waves that are crashing uh, high above us, and we are in the midst of this ocean, drowning, drowning. Now what's amazing is there are countless billions that are drowning today and yet they don't know they're drowning. They're not even crying out. They're not even looking for a log or something to hold on to. They're drowning. How does that work? It's quite an extraordinary thing to realize that you could be headed into an eternal abyss and not even recognize where you're going, which is the reason why the Spirit of God uses messengers. How will they hear unless they know? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring this good news? And so somehow some way those of us in this room and I'm not going to just use a uh, a blanket statement because there could be those of you in this room that haven't yet awakened to the reality of where you stand with Jesus. But let's say there's a good majority of you in here who have. How did you come to that place? One day you were just bobbing up and down in the water and then the next moment you recognized you were drowning. You started choking on water and you recognized there was nothing to hold on to. You're dying and you're dying fast. How did you know that? Well, it's a gift of grace. Ironically, it doesn't seem like a very good gift, does it? It's called bad news. The bad news is simply reality. It's not like God's inventing or hatching some bad news for you. It's bad news that you were born into. However, God is desiring you to be awakened to the reality of your soul so that you would cry out for a savior. See, the savior is also there, and so this is how the Welsh revival would say it. They would be dealing with people's souls, and people would be in anguish, crying out. They're suddenly realizing that they're drowning. The Spirit of God was moving in what was known as a revival. And so people were just in agony over their sin and over the state of their soul. They recognized they could feel the flames of hell burning against their soul. And so the picture came, if you are in that situation and you are drowning in those waters, I have good news for you. There is a ship that was designed and built just for you. It's on these waters, and it is looking for you. But it can only respond to the cry of faith. His name is Jesus. You call his name, and he will rescue you. And so in the Welsh revival, they would call out for Jesus, and he would rescue them. And so the transaction of faith was very simple. You cry out, you call, you lean upon him as your rescuer. And you will find that your hands will be securely fixed to the side of that boat. And so, that's the way it was. Fixed to the side of the boat. This is where most of us as Christians stay. Our bodies are still in the water, and our hands are fixed to the side of the boat. Do we have the boat? We do. Praise God. However, do you know that God didn't intend you to stay in the water? And that's exactly what the Welsh Revival would teach. It said you can't just remain in the water. You see, your two hands are being used to cling When in fact, you're supposed to be in the boat with those two hands leaning over and pulling other people in. So, what most of us as Christians do is we spend most of our energy spiritually on maintaining, holding on for dear life to our own relationship with Jesus Christ, and we've never matured to be the life-giving church. Not supposed to just be cultivating your life. You're supposed to be strong in your life to give of it to others around you. So I'm going to tell you about two hands. If you have this hand, you have this hand. What would they be doing? Well, prayer and confession, the two hands designed for rescue work. You see, you've been given two hands spiritually, and when you allow the Spirit of God to grow you up and to mature you, he begins to teach you immediately, even after your new birth, when you're stuck in the boat, how to use the hand of prayer and how to use the hand of confession. And so part of what we're going to be going through this semester with the new students is to help us understand how to cultivate that first, those first steps forward. Because some of us have been in the boat for years or been clinging to the side of the boat for years, but we haven't been functionally being Christians. It doesn't mean we aren't Christians. It doesn't mean that we are you know, lost at sea. It just means that there's something else that needs to be cultivated. Life, maturity. So the two hands designed for rescue work. The midwife. So, since we're talking about delivery, the gospel delivery, it seems appropriate to bring up a midwife. A midwife, for those of you that are unfamiliar, is one who attends to the process of a birth. Like, so, uh, we have six kids, but four of them were adopted. So, uh, that means two have been born, and in both situations, we had a midwife. And because daddy was not overly confident in being the midwife, let's just put it that way, I... It's just something that some men get all excited about this thing. Yeah, I want to be at the birth and I want to be delivering the baby, cutting the umbilical cord. Not me. I have no interest in that. I'll be there. I'll encourage, but I'll, you know, I'll be up hugging Leslie going, yeah, you're doing great. I don't want to deal with that stuff. Okay. And so there's some bold, brave, amazing people on this earth and we'll call them midwives. Okay. This is some gutsy work here. I mean, you're dealing with life and death oftentimes, but it's one who assists in the process of birth. So here we are, Uh, Philip sent over this scripture, he said, this is perfect, and it is, it really is a great illustration uh, with this message, but in Exodus 1, do you remember when uh, the nation of Israel was in Egypt, and they started to explode and multiply, and we actually hear about some midwives, and so listen to this, this is really good in light of this, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, so that fits our message really well, and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Praise God we need more of this. Insert difficulty, pain, hardship here. In other words, the moment you begin to multiply, one of the things you're going to begin to see is that there is a counter-resistance. The enemy does not just sit by and twiddle his thumbs and go, hey, what will be will be. That's what we do. The enemy is actually set to destroy the work of God. This is his entire agenda, his entire motive is to undermine What God has come to do. It says the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and that more abundant. We know the agendas of the kingdom. So when you start going about God's agenda, you'll notice the enemy goes about his agenda. And so we have uh, all sorts of difficulty, pain, and hardship because the Israelites are multiplying and the Egyptians don't like it too much. Okay, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Ironically, that's the same principle of growth in the kingdom of heaven. It's funny, but you'll notice that in countries where there's affliction for Christians, Christianity explodes. It doesn't make any sense to us Americans. I recognize that. However, when you endure difficulty as the natural byproduct of true spiritual living, you will be persecuted, by the way, when you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, which sort of makes you wonder, are we living a godly life in Christ Jesus here in America? It's just a good question. However, you will receive affliction, tribulation, hardship, and difficulty, but what does that do? It only strengthens you. Wait till we go through the semester. You're suddenly going to be really excited about hardship and difficulty. I know. It doesn't, it doesn't sound funny. Especially if any of you are American in here. You're like, oh, you can never convince me that hardship and difficulty are good. Well, we're going to work on that over these next nine weeks. It is actually a great blessing. because. Have you guys ever uh, seen how manure affects a, uh, a garden? In fact, some of you grew up on farms. You're like, yeah, bring in the stuff. However... I don't know about you, but if I were just to say manure, most of you go, yuck. But if I said manure on garden, you would say, yes, very necessary. Well, what's the difference in what I'm saying? Okay? If I said difficulty, you'd say, yuck. But if I said difficulty, the Christian life and the development of the soul, you'd say, yeah, necessary, good stuff. It's because you're going to cultivate that and till it in, and it's going to cause life to come forth. See, the enemy can try and stop what we are doing. But the more he tries, the stronger we get. You know how frustrating that is for the devil, yeah? And we get a big smile on our faces. They bring in the stuff. Come on, haul it in. We need more manure. So, insert order. Insert the order from Pharaoh to kill all male Hebrew children at birth, and some God-fearing wives here, God-fearing midwives here. So this is where the order comes in. You know, the, the, the Hebrews are multiplying way too fast, and so now Pharaoh has issued the edict to have the midwives kill, if there's ever a male son born to the Hebrews, to kill him. Throw him into the Nile, you know, all that type of stuff. And so that, that story's in there, but what does, what's God's statement after the midwives refuse to do this and instead attend to these births to make sure they're protecting the lives? Okay, again, this is us. I'm, I'm about to link us with this idea of midwifery. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very great. The gospel tier. A midwife. This is us. You see, most of us in here are probably not going to attend to births, you know, in the physical, biological sense. We're going to attend to births in the supernatural sense, the spiritual sense. And so we'll call that a gospel tier. One who assists the Holy Spirit in the process of new birth. We aren't the ones that bring about the new birth but for whatever reason we're included in the process god could have made birth to not need a midwife and yet there seems to be this construct of a midwife who attends and helps it along you know there are supernatural uh conversions around the world where people have no midwife they didn't even hear about the gospel and they just somehow know jesus through a dream it happens but it's rare God's main intent is to awaken us in and through the assistance of another Christian. This is just his way. I didn't come up with it. This is his way. And that's what a gospel tier is. So I'm going to talk about the 10 Ps of gospel tiering. Now, this is going to be an important list that I'm going to build on this week and next week. This week, I'm only going to take a little bit of it that we're going to focus on, but I want to give you the overview. Okay, so when we are stirred to say something must happen. I'd say, pray, that would be my first thing. Gospel prayer, that's the first P. Gospel prayer number one, but what do we pray for? The unction to pray. You see, what unction is, is it's the enabling grace of God to function as a Christian, and when I tell you to pray, have you noticed the first thing that can oftentimes happen is like, I don't even know how to pray, That's okay. So pray for the unction to pray. And so this is how we start as Christians. Like, God, I have no clue how to do this, but here I am. And so what we are actually asking for is functional strength to be able to do the praying. And what does the praying do? Well, gospel prayer number two, for the unction to boldly confess. When you start praying, you're going to realize that God wants to cultivate a certain prayer. And that that is that you will boldly deliver what has changed your soul boldly. God boldly delivered a message to you. Now you're saying, God, take this tongue, please. Take this life. I need boldness. One of the things we all in here need to recognize is that boldness is not something that's just in our own pockets. Like, oh yeah, I have plenty of that. We don't have it. We're absent the very tool that we need to be able to take what's inside of us and give it. And we cower instead of boldly enter. Instead of speaking, we get timid. So it's not just you. It's all of us. You see, you could be bold in all sorts of areas. You could be a middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears and put you know, war paint underneath your, uh, your eyes and go straight against a 400-pound offensive lineman and growl. I mean, that's bold. However, that same man might be completely timid for the gospel. You see, the gospel draws on something. It's a spiritual reservoir. You either have it or you don't. How do you get it? You get it through prayer. It's called unction. And so first you need the unction to pray, then you need the unction to boldly confess. Gospel prayer number three, for the unction for others to hear and receive. So you begin to pray for the boldness to confess. This is where many of us in this church today are. We're saying, God, I've heard this so many weeks in a row and I keep expecting Eric to move on, but he keeps hammering on this point. Will he not relent? Well, if we're a producing church, then I don't need to say it anymore. We'd just be doing it, preaching it to others in and through our lives. However, I want to press this until we are actively engaged in this. So many of us are praying for that unction to boldly confess. But what flows out of that? Now we begin, when we're bold, to pray for the souls that we're going to reach. God, prepare them. And how about the souls that we spoke to? Get them. Gain them. We begin to pray for the unction for them. That they would have the function of the Spirit of God within them, awakening them and stirring them so that they can hear, understand, and comprehend. Now here's another P. You notice it's going to change from prayer to pursuit. So you have the boldness, and you're praying that their souls will be made ready. Now what are you doing? You're pursuing. Gospel pursuit number one, aggressively sowing the seed of Jesus Christ. Now if I just said sowing the seed of Jesus Christ, you'd feel more comfortable. But I threw in this awkward word in there, aggressively. It's like, whoa, that's where I get uncomfortable, Eric. If we just sow the seed like... Someone happens to come up to us and say, Eric, do you have some seed for me? And I go, oh, I do. Here's a seed. You see, that's the way we as American Christians function. We wait for someone to come up to us and say, hey, do you have some seed for me? And we're shocked that so few do ever come up to us and ask us for our seed. First of all, oftentimes they don't even know we're Christians. Secondly, they don't know that that we have seed, let alone that they need the seed. You see, this is the aggressive sowing of the seed is very, very important. I'm going to come back to it. Gospel pursuit number two: consistency and relent, consistent, consistently and relentlessly watering the soil with love. Gospel pursuit number three: boldly reaping the ready fruit. I'm going to go through these three that I just named: the gospel pursuits, gospel pangs. There's another P. Aren't you impressed with my Ps that I'm whipping out? Gospel pangs. Now that really fits. For, you see, I've never delivered a baby, so some of the women in here could be like, "Hey, you know, stay within the you know, range of motion that you understand, Eric." However, gospel pangs, since Paul talks about, in a sense, the pangs of childbirth, I feel like it's appropriate that I could bring them up as well. But there are pangs that we need to oversee. In other words, when you are boldly pursuing to reap the fruit, and you come to a soul and they say, I want Jesus. Now is this critical dimension of walking them from death unto life. Most of us just have them pray a quick prayer. But what I want to teach us as the body is how to walk through this process of death to life. Thoroughly bringing the ready soul through unto life. Gospel push. Uh, See, this is all good delivery terminology. The press to baptize. Now, since I'm not going to be able to cover this this week, this is the concept after someone has literally gone from death unto life, literally, you want to press them unto a confession, an outward confession before the believers of their position. And so that's typically known as baptism. Baptism is just a Greek word for being put in or immersed in something. Okay, now we understand baptism, like at Ellerslie, is going in and out of water here at the lake. However, that doesn't save you. Baptism isn't what saves you. You already are alive. You've been brought from death unto life. However, the first testimony of that is to say this life belongs to Jesus, and you use this tongue. This tongue needs to confess and that shows that this is occupied territory. It's like the standard on the high hill. My life belongs to Jesus. And that confession of baptism is multiple, multiple folds. In other words, not only is it a confession, but it is also acknowledgement of that my old life is dead and I have newness of life in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit operates this body. So that's the press to baptize, gospel practice. Number one, immediate discipleship. One of the things that we're really struggling with in modern Christianity here in America is say we bring someone into the kingdom of heaven, now what do we do with them? Do we just send them off to church to sit in a pew and listen and maybe over the next 10 years they might figure things out? Most people don't know what prayer is. They just know they're supposed to do it. They don't know how the Bible is put together. They don't know how to study it even though they know they're supposed to. They don't even know why they should believe it. They just are told that it's important that they do. They don't know what grace is. They don't know what faith is. They have some, some of them have rudimentary definitions for you, but they don't have ownership of it, and they have a difficult time imparting it to others. So we have to take people to the pastor and say, just listen to him. I have a completely different vision for the church of Jesus Christ, and that every single one of us is built to do every single thing in these 10 P's. Every single one of us. It's not that you have to bring them to Eric Ludi. It's like, oh, Eric knows how to do that. The rest of us are sort of in the dark. Well, that's ridiculous. If I'm the only one in here that knows how to do it, then it's high time I teach you how to do it. Otherwise, we're in trouble. We bring in 10 billion or 7.16 billion. I mean, could you imagine me trying to disciple those? <laughs> Gospel practice number two, the pressing toward prayer and confession. So what did you start with? Prayer and Confession. Now they're brought to newness of life. They enter into discipleship, and what do you press them to do? To pray and to disciple. In other words, you're replicating. You bring life in them via the Holy Spirit and in through obedience, and what happens in them? They begin to do the same in others. And as a result, we have this function of the church of Jesus Christ. And even if my head gets lopped off, guess what? It doesn't matter. The church doesn't depend upon Eric Ludi, It depends upon Jesus Christ, and they can't lop off his head. In other words, he is forever the head. He is forever the king of kings and lord of lords. And so if we as the church lean on his strength and his power and his position, it doesn't matter how many of us get lost in the process. He wins and he will gain for himself a reward. So I'm gonna go through those three in the middle that were called the gospel pursuits. And that's what this week's message is mainly gonna focus on, is I wanna talk about the gospel pursuit. And this, this, i un- I don't want to even say unfortunately, but this is in that realm of discomfort for us. Because most of what I'm saying you can agree with intellectually. It's if we were out in some awkward social situation and I nudged you and I said, go up to them and share the gospel. That's where the rubber meets the road. Because you're like, well, I just don't feel like this is a good situation. Key truth number one. If you're looking for good situations, you'll share the gospel once every year. You see, what we're oftentimes looking for is something that beckons us with social propriety in place and everything is going to be appropriate and we will keep our dignity and we'll look smart the whole time. See, we don't want that we have our justifications. I don't want Christianity to look bad. And if I come up and bumble my way through it, they're going to think Christianity is an idiot's religion. Your job isn't to consider God's reputation in that regard. Your job is to obey. Your job is to begin to be the sower. You ever heard of that sower who's throwing seed? What's his job? If if I hired you to be a sower in my field, what would your job be? To hold on to your seed and wait for the right moment? It's to sow the seed. That seed will fall on different kinds of soil, but your job isn't to evaluate that as much as it is to supply the seed. You've been given something, now what are you going to do with it? So aggressive sowing, relentless, loving, and bold reaping. Yes, I will prepare you that this is a bit uncomfortable. Gospel pursuit number one, aggressive sowing, always giving the gospel, always. Now, that's going to come out in different ways, because when I say the gospel, some of you are thinking an entire message that goes from Adam and Eve all the way to the book of Revelation. And that's not necessarily what I mean, even though that would be great. If someone actually is ready For you to walk them through and teach them the full framework of the gospel of grace. Because there's a historic gospel. There's the power of the gospel. There's a lot of different things that this word, the gospel, can hold. A lot of times what the gospel is for us is it's seeds of truth that we are sticking in people's lives. They need to know their need of a savior. It's that simple. If they don't recognize that they are at odds with the lawgiver and the judge... If they don't recognize that their soul is rightfully, justly condemned unto eternal hell, then they won't understand their need for a rescue from it. When you look at the Bible, what is the Bible doing? It's speaking bluntly and boldly to our souls to say, you are a sinner. We're like, how offensive is that? I'm just fine. However, the Bible doesn't placate. It doesn't just pat us on the back and say, oh, I'm really sorry if this is offending you. It says it. And guess what? Most of us in here, if not all of us in here, love the Bible. And it just speaks straightforwardly to our soul. Excuse me? That is politically incorrect, God. God doesn't care about political correctness. He is a God of love that is pursuing the awakening of those that are dying and lost. He loves us too much to allow us just to go into the trash can. He is after us. However, we end up styming his ability to go after, because we are his hands and feet down on this earth. And he says, go, go. You see, I'm going to heaven so that I will give you power so that you can go in my name. You take this seed. You go into all the world. You do what the word of God does. It gives truth. So when you are giving the gospel, it doesn't always sound like, uh, I just want you to know that uh, the Ten Commandments say this, and you violated them, and as a result, you're going to hell. Jesus Christ is the lone answer. Depends on how much time you have. Depends on the circumstances. However, you can plant seeds. You can plant seeds that might be one statement. They might be one idea. They might be one question. You guys ever heard of that guy, what was it, uh, on the streets of, was it Sydney, Australia? Uh, that would always stand there, and every day he would ask everyone, if they died today, where would they go? And the man, you know, as the story goes, didn't ever see really much fruit of any fruit of his ministry, but then as they looked into it years later, they found that people were changed all over the world uh, because of this man's question. He was a sower. He wasn't always seeing the reaping. And that's what I want you to catch here. This is a dimension of our life, and that is sowing the loving truth of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. Key principle, be the body. Get that seed in the soil of their soul. Now, I want to pass on a vision, because as I'm going through this, I recognize, see, I am socially groomed i have a social sensitivity that is oftentimes a great hindrance to my life i know some of you in here think i don't because i say things that i'm just not supposed to say actually when i say it i'm very aware that i'm not supposed to say it it's called the grace of god working in me to bring me to the point where i'm free from the fear and the trepidation that comes with public approval ratings i actually don't care about public approval anymore praise god i'm free freedom It really is wonderful. However, it doesn't mean I'm not sensitive to it, and I don't understand that you could be sensitive to it as well. So I recognize as I'm going through this, there's just something uncouth and socially abhorrent to the idea of giving this sort of a message to people's soul everywhere you Go. I mean, come on. Could I have some time off to be cool for a little season? So I have my cool side of life where I can be hip and everyone likes me. And then I have my evangelistic side of life where I go out, but I go to a different town where they don't know me. (laughs) See, this is how some of us think through these things. So here's my commission to us. We need to be the body. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So we need to violate the unspoken American social code. So, does the American social code define how we are as Christians? Should it? I I hope not. But that is what is defining us as Christians today. The books we write, the way we preach, the way we build churches, seeker sensitivity. We want to be sensitive to people as opposed to sensitive to God. He's the one that has given us a commission. He's the one that's given us the job. We should go to him and say, God, how do you want us to fulfill this job? As opposed to going door to door in the neighborhood and saying, how... How do you want me to get you to church? What kind of church would you want? You listen to the sinner to let him define or her define what church should be like. You're not going to get a gospel-centered church that brings Jesus Christ to life and convicts the man and brings him to a full death in his old life and a new life in Christ Jesus. You're not going to bring them to the cross because the cross means denial of self, and there isn't anyone out there that say, yeah, could you somehow lead me to a denial of my own life that I would forsake everything I have and know? I would really like to just die uh, to all that I have, all my ambition, all things that would prosper my life. No one is inclined towards that. And yet, unless they become new creatures, they're dead. You know something they don't know. Don't pander after their approval, their thoughts on the matter. If you're parenting children, rule number one, don't let your children parent you. You know more than your newborn. You know what your newborn needs, so therefore you parent the newborn. It's love. You care about your newborn too much to allow the newborn to dictate how the home is going to run. You say, oh, little one, I love you so much, but I love you too much to allow you to lead the home. I want you to know that Jesus Christ leads this home, and he put me in charge. (laughs) Talking with the uncomfortable ones in the uncomfortable situations. This is one of the key lessons that I'm going through present tense. There are certain situations where it's it's actually fine and sort of comfortable, I don't wanna say comfortable, but sort of comfortable to share about Jesus. I prefer those situations, as probably do you. So God keeps setting me in very awkward situations where as I'm going through these past weeks, I realize that I have funny errands I need to run and I'm going into odd situations. And then I'm walking in and I sort of realize, ooh, uh uh-oh, oh no, now I need to live this here? Oh, how exciting is this gonna be. <laughs> and as a result, I have these funny stories spurting out because I recognize that when there's there's certain situations we would deem as just uncomfortable. Eh, not really the right situations, how we would reason through it. And actually to say, no, I'm going to now embrace those uncomfortable situations and boldly enter into them as a form of practice. I want to actually become good at facing uncomfortable situations because I have a hunch that God loves those uncomfortable situations a lot more than the easy ones. Can't you just see his wry smile? He's looking going, we'll stick Eric in this one. So, Eric, what were you preaching this last Sunday? Well, that doesn't matter, God. This is just an awkward situation. Eric? (laughs) (laughs) I have the same things go on inside of me. One of the things, look at this next one, looking for the most infamous in the room. One of the things that the Salvation Army, back in the good old days of the Salvation Army under William and Catherine Booth, one of the statements that William Booth would say is, when you go into a new town, when you go into a new country, whichever it is, whatever city you're in, look for the most infamous sinner and get him with the gospel. His changed life will be the testimony that you could leverage for the rest of the village or the rest of the city or the rest of the town. It's true. It works because everyone knows that's the town drunk. That's the guy that leads the gang. Well, how many of us are thinking about that guy? And we're going to go, all right, let's go after him. Think about the most infamous in America right now, the ones that actually hate Christians more than any others. How about the most infamous in the world? You can fill in the blank pretty quickly. Could you imagine us as Christians saying, hey, guys, let's go after him? You know, if ISIS all converts, it's a pretty powerful testimony to the rest of the world. You follow me? So all I'm saying is, do we have the stuff of heaven? Or are we leaning on what's in our own pockets naturally? Because if you look to your own pockets naturally, you're not doing any of this stuff. It takes hmm, swings to fell this tree. Will you supply a swing? Let's imagine that we have Jack Philpot. He was my illustration uh, a few weeks back. Jack Philpot is just an imaginary character. However, one of our uh, congregation sent me an email that says Jack Philpot actually lives in Australia and he gave me some uh, city name so there is a guy poor Jack we should probably uh, all write letters to him like send tracks and just go after him uh, but so Jack Philpot is the symbol of the unbeliever okay one that has defied Jesus Christ has no interest in hearing about Jesus Christ and yet Jack is on your heart in your life he's somehow crossing paths with you so imagine that I said, it's going to take 15 swings of the gospel against this man's soul before he is felled, before he actually responds and humbles himself unto Jesus Christ. See, most of us are saying, hey, I tried. And we stop pursuing Jack Philpot, as opposed to recognizing that God is still burdened for Jack. Are we willing to work together as the body to go after Jack? So let me give you an illustration of Jack Philpot, The Jack Philpot scenario. A single day in the life of an unbeliever in Windsor, Colorado. So obviously we're talking about a different Jack Philpot than the one in Australia. Charlie swings by Jack's house to fix a hole in his roof. Doesn't that sound like something Charlie would do? Ask Jack if he knows Jesus. Jack is short with Charlie and doesn't care for his words. Okay, he's just curt and he's like, hey. I don't want to hear about that stuff. Okay, so obviously Charlie might not feel like it was very effective, but this is all the same day. Philip is sitting next to Jack at Dunkin' Donuts. Rumor has it that Philip actually really likes donuts, and so that's, I figured that's where he would be. <laughs> Philip is sitting next to Jack at Dunkin' Donuts and asks Jack where he stands with Jesus Christ. Jack is startled by the coincidence of such a question. He is rude to Philip and appears unmoved and unfeeling to Philip's inquiry, but is disturbed by the fact that in the past hour... He's been asked about Jesus Christ twice. See, what I'm giving you is an illustration of how the body of Christ works when we're led of the Spirit. Philip may not have a clue about Charlie's interaction with Jack, but Philip is just being a sower. He's just doing what he does. So he's being Jesus unto Jack in Dunkin' Donuts. And Jack, though he is curt and, and very rude to Charlie, and equally so to Philip, is actually oddly being moved by the fact that that's strange. That's strange. Rebecca sees Jack on the other side of King Super's gas pump while pumping gas into her car. She says, hi. Jack shudders at the friendliness of everyone in the town today. (laughs) He mutters, hi, back. Then Rebecca brings up Jesus. Jack turns pale, even sick. His resistance to Jesus is fading. He is being overcome with the pursuit of the Spirit of God. Real questions are striking his soul, convicting questions. His answer to Rebecca is vague and hasty. He stops pumping gas, hops in his car, and gets out of there. See, many of us have been in this situation where the Spirit of God is pursuing us, but what is he using? He's using the body of Christ. He's using obedient vessels. And so what I'm saying is your job is not to do all the work in these 10 Ps. It's to be ready to do any one of the 10 at any given moment. Adrian sees Jack walking out of Wells Fargo. This poor guy... He looks like he is hurting, like he is in real pain. She walks across the parking lot from McDonald's. Adrian, I don't know what you were doing at McDonald's. Hopefully it was sharing the gospel and not eating hamburgers. (laughs) She walks across the parking lot from McDonald's and says, Are you all right? Jack shrugs his shoulders and gives us a dismissing wave of the hand. Adrian says, I would love to pray for you, sir. The man stops and looks at her with wide-eyed amazement. Pray, he grunts. Then he barks, I don't believe in God. Adrian smiles and says, Well, I know what to pray for then. I'll pray that you would believe in God through his son, Jesus Christ. With that, she smiles again and walks off. You see how this works? What's happening to Jack? Jack is stunned, startled. He's being taken over by something. He's being awakened and stirred. Later that afternoon, Bo, oh no, can't you just feel it? Bo mats It runs into this guy. Later that afternoon, Bo is out walking with his family. They see Jack in his front yard trying to start his mower. Bo knows he needs to talk with this man. When Bo reaches him, Jack attempts to wipe the tears away from his eyes in embarrassment. He's ready for the gospel. Bo is on it. You see, it's the body of Christ just simply being the body of Christ here in Windsor. And when you give the gospel, you might not feel like it was that effective. In fact, how many of us have felt in these past weeks that we bumbled our way through it? That would probably even be the word we would use. Fumbled, bumbled. It definitely wasn't very impressive. I can't imagine that God could ever use that. However... The Spirit of God doesn't need perfection on our part. He has the perfection of the blood of Jesus. He's simply looking for yielded vessels that are willing to be very unpolished but obedient. By the way, I'm very for polishing us as Christians that we don't just unnecessarily trip people. However, I want us to be willing to do what is on God's heart at any moment. The Holy Spirit uses the body of Christ, each one supplying the unique strength and unique pressure upon Jack's soul that the Spirit is directing. Gospel pursuit number two, relentless loving. So this is this idea of a constant pursuit. There are gonna be people that you're going to encounter here, say in this town of Windsor, and you can sow a seed of the gospel, they can know your position in Christ, and they can just know one very simple thing, whether or not they want Jesus or not, they can know that you love them. Now, it's relentlessly loving them. Because it's a funny thing in a small town, but you see people over and over and over again. Now, I'm not saying you need to be rude, but I'm saying you need to keep the pressure of love on their soul. There's one person I keep asking. It's like, so, I asked you if there was anything I could pray about for you. Are, are you sure you don't have something now? No, no, I'm, I'm fine. Well, I'm going to keep asking because I have a hunch one of these days you'll have you know, something that needs to be addressed. And she said something like, I know that, okay? I know, I'm sure you'll be there. (laughs) But everything is enfolded in love, always pursuing the salvation of those around us, not as irritants, but as those that genuinely care and are willing to suffer loss, even death, that they might live. You see, love is the great motivation of the kingdom of heaven. It's the great motivation of God to come to this earth and rescue us. It's also the great motivation that carries us to do this work of the kingdom. It's love for him and love for others. Key principle, be consistently Jesus before the world, always joyful, always loving, always pure, always otherly. Otherly is a great word. It simply means holy, but you're always otherly. You're not like this world. If any of those people that you're interacting with in a local sense are able to witness your life, they see how you're living behind the scenes, are they gonna see the same consistency with which you were representing the kingdom of heaven in front of them? And so the importance in your loving is to truly love God with your life because he can use a life that is consistent, that is truly marked by heaven's grace. The tadpoles and the impending judgment. So I I have this whole saga that has been unfolding at the Lutie house for quite some time. And it's just amazing how my sagas, whether it's Abby's birthday or whatever, all have to tie in with the messages that I give And this particular one has to do with our backyard pond. It's just a little teeny pond, maybe 15 feet across. So it's not huge. And then we have another lake. I'll call it a lake. But for those of you that get all offended when people call big ponds lakes, this would be a big pond. But I don't like calling it that. I call it a lake. And so we have a pond. And then out behind that, there's a lake. All right? And so we have some frog... And I don't know if it's a series of frogs or some community of frogs, but they entered into our pond, and we have tadpoles out the wazoo. I mean, I would say thousands, uh, and that would not be exaggerating. And my kids are in love with these tadpoles. All I can think is uh, Egyptian plague (laughs) when they start hopping out. If it's the same day, we have frogs everywhere, okay? So... Daddy is a little concerned about this plague issue that is up and coming. (laughs) However, Harper catches wind that Daddy is... uh, First of all, I have an algae problem. I don't know if any of you have had a pond and had to deal with algae. I have an algae problem, and I have spent a lot of money on dealing with my algae. And I'm trying to do it all organically, you know, so everything's just healthy, and I can still grow plants, or maybe even eventually have fish in there again, because I've had fish, but... Uh, That just took way too much of daddy's time to tend to these fish. And so now we're just sort of boring pond, some rocks in it, and algae. Algae could be symbolic of sin uh, in this. It's very fast. In fact, I think it's the fastest growing uh, organism on earth. And it just multiplies, uh, I mean, just extraordinary uh, rate. And so I have to deal with my algae. So I told the kids, I said, hey, guys, these, these tadpoles need to grow up quick. Get their legs on them and get out of here uh, because daddy's going to get some chlorine and we're going to clear out this. And Harper is just horrified. What about the tadpoles? And I said, judgment is coming. (laughs) If you want to save these tadpoles, you're going to have to get a bucket and take them down to the lake. You know what? This is so profound in light of what we're dealing with. So I have sent forth my kids to rescue tadpoles. It's funny because I actually think these tadpoles are really cute too. I just haven't told them that. I have a few witnesses here that might pass that message back home. But I, actually, I, mean, I watch these little tadpoles and they're squirming around. And it's interesting because they get caught in the algae. The algae's killing these guys too. They get caught in it and they can't even do anything. And so yesterday, daddy was cleaning out algae, okay? Because all my little things, like my little potions aren't working. And so now I have to take a rake and actually pull this stuff out. It's, this is heavy stuff. This is, it just is a mass, big, huge pile of green yuck. And when I'm doing it, guess what's caught in the algae? All sorts of tadpoles. So Hudson comes out, and I was sticking them on the lid of a, a plastic container. So the lid sort of fills up with water, and now some of these little tadpoles are swimming around because they got loose and are swimming around in the, in the container. And, and Hudson comes out, and I said, Hudson. Uh, You have just a few minutes. You can rescue some of these tadpoles. Go get Harper, Abby, and Dub and let them know. Bring out spoons and you guys can get these guys and stick them back in. But the time is short. (laughs) Judgment is at hand. And I was going to throw the algae in the trash can. Isn't this tremendously profound? Why? To clean this pond. Hey, you know, it has sin in it. It needs to be purified. See? Isn't this profound? Some of you are just thinking heartless. (laughs) So the tadpoles and the impending judgment. So you should have seen the kids. They were going out there and scooping these little uh, guys out. It was absolutely adorable. And they're like, we rescued one. Could you imagine if we had the same attitude to say, you know, look, little tadpole, because some of them wouldn't get in the spoon. They were running away from it. It's like, unless you get in the spoon, I can't save you. Unless you just trust me right now. What I'm trying to do is help you. Haven't you ever felt that? These tadpoles don't buy it. I think uh, you know, they're going to be far better staying near the algae. However, if you stay near the algae, you die. Daddy's predicament. I've got an algae problem. This stuff grows, well, like algae. I've tried everything to keep these ponds clear, but nothing has seemed to work. It's time to bring in the strong stuff, chlorine. But there's a small problem. Harper's desperate plea, please, let the tadpoles turn to frogs first, Daddy, before you stick the stuff in. Daddy's day of judgment is at hand. Hudson? Go tell Harper, Dub, and Abby that these tadpoles can still be saved if you do something immediately. Grab a spoon and rescue them, Harper's desperate plea. Daddy, there's still another one in there. We need to save them all. What, what happened to us as Christians? That a little eight-year-old is more on target with that heartbeat of seeing Daddy pick up the algae. She's running to the trash can with Daddy, digging through the algae. And they saved two as it's even going into the trash can. I mean, isn't that precious? So I tried to think the judgment day has to come, so this is symbolic. I mean, it was hard for me, but what am I supposed to do? Keep the algae in the pond? What's the solution to this? So some of you probably have some brilliant solutions. like, well, Eric, didn't you go Googling on this one? There's a whole solution for this. Saving tadpoles out of algae. (laughs) Gospel pursuit number three, bold reaping. Pluck the ripe ones when you see them. Don't let the ready fruit turn bad. It's, I don't know what to call it, but we'll call it a sixth sense. As you cultivate your spiritual life, you're gonna know when someone's ready for the gospel. The more you pursue souls, the more you begin to be very knowledgeable. I don't know what to call it, but you know when someone is ready to be pressed into life. There's a desperation, and ironically, on the outside, they could still have their hands folded. And I've come up to so many people and I go, where do you stand with Jesus? And they go, I, yeah, I, I'm not interested. And I said, I think you're ready to yield your life to Jesus Christ right now. And they sort of stare back at me like, well, I just said I'm not interested. And I said, I think you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. The next thing you know, they're on their knees giving their life to Jesus Christ. What is that? Why is it that I would know that? Is it because I'm you know, some magician? No. It's like someone who lives on a farm, and they have an orchard. And they see ripe fruit. Wouldn't it seem strange to say, that's not ripe. If if you know ripe fruit, you know what it feels like. And you recognize it. And the same is true in Christianity. When you are seeing someone ripened by the Spirit of God, on the outside they may actually still have some bluff and bluster. But you need to be sensitive to reap it. If you leave that fruit too long on there, it might go bad. In other words, we want to reap that which God is revealing to us. Key principle, boldly ask the ready soul to bend its knee before its rightful Lord. Recognizing the readiness and ripeness and plucking it. So one of the things that I want to lay as far as a foundation today isn't the fullness of these 10 Ps. It's the action dimension on our part to pursue. And I've pressed on this for quite a few weeks in a row. However, I want us, if you are feeling very weak, and your knees are knocking every time we give one of these messages, and you you keep coming back to the service just for therapy because you know that if you harden to God on this point, bad things are going to happen. So you keep coming back, but you feel so impotent when it comes to the actual doing. I want you to begin to pray for that unction. You can have access in Christ Jesus to that which you need to be able to live the life that you know you ought to live. It's not you that does it it's him that does it, ask, boldly ask. God's gonna give you the boldness. And you're gonna find that you want to reach Saul's. When you get God's heart, you actually want to do it. If you're finding right now that you don't even care, it's like I'd only do it out of a sense of duty, go to God on that. I want you to be shamed over your indifference. I want you to be convicted over the fact that you don't care. And come to God and say, God, I want to care as you care. If I truly am a Christian, show the signs of life in me. Some of you, maybe you're not a Christian. I need to come unto Jesus. You need to be transferred from death unto life. Because there's something that changes inside of us. We are altered. We are filled with love. We are filled with the Spirit of God. And now we care as God cares. We think as God thinks. His burdens become our burdens. We can't just live life the way we used to live it. Some of us in this room are still trying to fit our Christian life, into a worldly pattern of living. Whoever told us that that's the way that Christianity worked doesn't match with the entire Bible. We are supposed to be like his pattern of living. Visit heaven for a day and say, does God live like the world? He is opposite, which is what holy means. He is holy, holy, holy. He is other than this world, other than its pattern, other than its ways. And where do we live? What are we citizens of? We're citizens of heaven let's begin to behave as God behaves. So the next thing that we're going to deal with, God willing, next week is thorough conversion. I want to walk you through the process of leading someone from death unto life. And so we'll call this the gospel pangs, thoroughly bringing the ready soul through unto life. You see, just to have someone come and kneel and pray a quick prayer does not actually address so many of the dimensions in the soul. For instance, they need to know what the blood of Jesus is for. They need to be forgiven. They need to forgive others. They need to renounce the connections of sin in their life. They need to repent. They need to enter and clearly understand their position in Christ Jesus. These are things that are not hard. However, most of us, because the way we were brought into the kingdom of heaven, it was not a thorough process. We've been putting it together over the past years. And as a result, we feel a little funny trying to bring someone else through. However, if we just get the full toolkit back, and we say, all right, when someone's ready to be brought into the kingdom, let's make sure we have all the tools in place. He that gathers in summer is a wise son. So, this is our summer semester. He that gathers in the summer, he that gains that harvest in the summer, is a wise son. But he that sleeps in harvest is a son that causes shame. Let's awaken. Let's go out and reap. Now, for those of you that are newly arriving, what I want you to allow God to do is get you out of your comfort zone. I I know, comfort zones are, they have the name comfort zone for a reason. We prefer them. We prefer our houses to be about 68 to 70 degrees. And if they get to be 95, it's considered uncomfortable and we would prefer to go elsewhere. If they, they become 40 degrees, the same. In other words, there's a temperate comfort zone. However, lost souls are in extreme heat and extreme cold. And are we willing to go where they are to reach them? It's going to get uncomfortable. But that very discomfort is going to be fertilizer for your soul. And you're going to find that you will become stronger in and through it. Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. You're being called. But here's what we need to emphasize. Faithful is he, God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is calling you, who also will do this work. It's not up to you to pull it off. He will do it. You yield. You allow him to do it. A very, I have so many precious stories with Hudson. This has been a very deep thing with Hudson, too, with all my kids. And so we've been learning to gospel-tier together. And my kids would have a propensity to let Daddy do the talking because daddy knows what he's talking about. He can say it so much better. This is a propensity that all of us can have. You surround yourself with someone who just can say it better than you, and you can just sort of relax a little. But I want that tension in my kids' lives, but I also want them to know that they don't need to do things perfectly. They just need to be obedient. So it was a few weeks ago, that Hudson was in our Tuesday night thing, and he felt like God spoke to him, and that was that he needed to share about Jesus with the man, to, to the man with the keys. And so he came, he didn't even tell me this, he told mama this, and then mama passed it on to me, so I, I tucked it away. And in the meantime, he actually shared the gospel a few times, it was, it was really profound, but it was in written form, and he had some, just some great first steps. But he was just hungering, he's starting to think everywhere he goes, that God, do you want me to share the gospel? And so the other day we were in CrossFit, and afterwards, I was talking with someone off to the side. Meanwhile, something's taking place in the room that I didn't even know was taking place, and that is Hudson saw a guy with keys. And you know, CrossFit isn't the most normal spot, especially when you're dealing with an older man, and Hudson's 10. And Hudson, I mean, I can just put myself in Hudson's shoes, and I can see myself drawing back. But Hudson sees this guy with the keys, and he walks up, he says he was feeling sick to his stomach, he was feeling so weak, comes up to this guy and says, hi, my name's Hudson, what's your name? And the guy said his name, and he said, I'm going to be praying for you, and I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And Hudson's trembling, and the guy says, well, thank you. And then Hudson, we were walking out to the car, and Hudson says, daddy, we need to pray for her. and he gave the man's name. And I said, Who's that? Uh, and he says, that's the guy that I just told about Jesus in there. I go, what? Uh, and so I said, well, let's pray then. And we've been praying for this guy over and over again. We have a whole list of people that our, my family has been talking to about Jesus. It's we have this huge list. I'm actually getting somewhat overwhelmed by our lists. Like, we need to see these people come into the kingdom as opposed to just give them messages because you can't keep this list. What, 3,000 long? But if this keeps going. And yet, the weight upon my children is there. And to me, this is about as precious as it gets. I have two families. I have that family and I have this one. And I am, it's interesting, but I am just as excited. I've had multiple ones of you sharing emails and texts of evangelistic things that you've been doing. And I want you to know it's the same thing that stirs within my soul. It's like there's a paternal or fatherly excitement to see that cultivation of life within us so I just want to commend us as the body of Christ to not just be hearers but to be doers
0: we hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.